the 1800s, Sam Walter Foss wrote this poem about prayer called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with his eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed while standing on my head. We'll come to a part of the Sermon on the Mount today where Jesus talks to us about how to pray. Not in those specific ways, but in much better ways. He gives us a pattern for prayer. He teaches that we can have an audience with God, the Father. And He shows us how important it is to be forgiving and loving toward each other if we're going to pray with power. So today in Matthew 6, we're going to let Jesus teach us about prayer in this Sermon on the Mount. We're going to discover that it is possible to have a wonderful communion or fellowship with God Himself through prayer, where we focus first on Him and His majesty, and then where we bring our requests to Him. And along the way, day by day, being certain that we're in unity with those who are in the family of God who like us, want to be seeking to live the God life. And what I want to do today is, in a little different uh, sermon method than in recent weeks, is to focus on 11 questions. Many times when I prepare sermons, I'm asking questions of the text. When, where, who, how, why... Those kinds of questions. They help me understand the text better. But these questions this morning are application questions that come out of this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching by Jesus about prayer. So let's start by looking at our anytime audience with God. Jesus says in verse 5 of Matthew 6, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I want to to point out to you at the very beginning here the phrase that comes up three times in those verses 5 through 8 
the phrase, when you pray. Remember we said last week that helping the poor, almsgiving, uh, praying, and fasting were three Uh, exercises that were considered to be very important and very spiritual to Jewish people, especially to the scribes and Pharisees. And yet they weren't doing it with the right reasons and the right motives. So Jesus calls them hypocrites here. But as He's talking on the mountain to His disciples and to others who were there listening, He's saying to them, I want to instruct you about how to pray in a way that honors God. Not like the hypocrites pray. So, as I look at that phrase repeated three times, when you pray or when you are praying, the first question that comes to my mind is this, when do you pray? Jesus assumes that His followers who want to live the God life are going to pray. So the question then is, when do you pray? And I mean that very simply, very straightforwardly. Do you pray in the morning when you get up? Do you pray at mealtimes? Do you have a time of devotions or private time with the Lord where you pray? Do you get alone with God and talk to Him as your Father in Heaven? When do you pray? If you're not in the habit of praying, you really need this text. You really need this challenge from Jesus. He's saying, pray. Don't just talk about it. Pray. Another question is, where do you pray? Where? He says, go to your inner room. Get alone with God. Talk to Him from your heart. In that secret place. There is a quiet place far from the rapid pace where God can soothe the troubled mind. Getting alone with God is what Jesus is talking about here. Unlike the Pharisees, they wanted to announce their praying. Everyone, everyone, I'm going to pray now. And they may have folded their hands or may have held them over their head. They may have stood at the wailing wall in Jerusalem and prayed as they rocked back and forth. I don't know how they exactly prayed. But I do know that Jesus says these hypocrites, these actors, these people who are faking it, they pray so that people will notice that they're praying. They want to be seen and heard as they pray. But you, you, when you pray... Go to your inner room. Close the door. Why close the door? Why not leave it open so other people can hear? His point isn't that. His point is, when you are alone in that room with the door closed, it's just you and God. An audience of one. He's listening. As Gloria said, He not only listens, He answers. So that God who sees you in that secret place who knows you're there and He hears you as you're speaking to Him, He's going to reward you. That is, He's going to answer prayer. And then another question that comes up in these first few verses is, why do you pray? Do you pray so that people will notice how spiritual you are? 
There's nothing wrong with praying in public, and we ask people to do that at different times. I've asked Jim uh, Chavarria if he would uh, lead in prayer when we start our business meeting, our annual meeting, and he has agreed to do that. Nothing wrong with praying in public. But the question is, why do you pray? If you're a Pharisee in Jesus' day, the answer would have to be, if we're honest, well, I pray because I want people to think I'm spiritual. I pray because I want people to hear me and how flowery I can be as I recite my prayers. And then there are the Gentiles, those who don't know God, who are from various religious groups, many of them still intact today. And in those various religious groups, they use a lot of mantras, repetitive sayings, over and over and over again. The same phrase, again and again and again. And Jesus says, don't pray like that. Pray from the heart. Talk to God in that audience of one as if you're talking to a friend, because He is your friend. As if you're talking to your Father, because He is your Father. Just talk to Him. Why do you pray? And then the final question here in this first section is, how do you pray? How do you pray? Please notice the very last verse, verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That connects that question, why do you pray, with how do you pray? Because some people read that phrase, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. And they would say, why should I pray? God knows what I need. What's the point of praying? And of course, I'm hoping that God's people will say, first of all, there's a reason for praying, and that is because God tells me to. It's a command. A command to pray. It says your Father knows what you need, and that's true. He knows everything about you. He knows what you need. But then it says, before you, what? Ask Him. He does know what you need, but He says, pray. So, why do I pray? I pray because I am dependent on God. And that leads then to, how do I pray? Jesus wanted His disciples to know if you really want to get in touch with God, if you really want to show how dependent you are on God, then here is a pattern for your prayer. Here's a pattern. It's a perfect pattern. And the reason I can say that is because it comes from Jesus, the perfect sinless Son of God, who Himself prayed often while He was on earth, talking to His Father pouring out His heart. In that Garden of Gethsemane, He was pouring out His heart so much that He was sweating like great drops of blood. He was burdened. So my first question from this section of the Sermon on the Mount is, do you have a relationship with Him? If we start our prayer, Our Father who is in heaven, 
if our prayer is to start by acknowledging Him as our Father in Heaven, the question then becomes, do I have a relationship with Him where He is my Father? Because He's not the Father of everyone on planet Earth. I hope you know that. Jesus said to the Jews of His day in John chapter 8, verse 44, You are of your Father, the devil. They probably didn't like to hear that. They may have thought of themselves as children of God, but they weren't. Their father was the devil. You have to have a faith relationship with Jesus in order to call God your father. He made all of us. He's the creator of all of us. But He's not the Father of all of us unless we know Jesus as our personal Savior. So I ask you again, do you have a relationship with Him? Has there been a point in time in your life, recently or a long time ago, when you acknowledged before God, I am a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. He paid the debt of all those sins. And then He rose again and He offers me the gift of eternal life and right now I receive it by faith. That's how you have a relationship with Him. And then you can pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. The second question then is this, in this section of the the Sermon on the Mount, do you revere His name? When it says, Hallowed be thy name. It means revered is your name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. Special is your name. And so the question is, do you revere His name? I love this verse in Psalm 91, verse 14. God is speaking. And He says, because He has loved me, Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. That word known there has the idea of an intimate knowledge. Like a husband who knows his wife intimately. Everything about her. She knows him. But I want you to know who he's talking about. As God says, because He has loved me. Who's He talking about? Well, you go back to verse 1 of Psalm 91. And there's the answer. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That is, the person who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Who's in His presence every day. Talking with Him. That person is going to be delivered and set securely on high because He has known my name. He's become intimate with me, God says. I know Him. He knows me. And then the next question is, do you want His kingdom to come? Revered be your name. Your kingdom come. That's a prayer request. Your kingdom come. I want your kingdom to come. Do we really want His kingdom to come? In this world today, it doesn't seem like God's kingdom is very obvious. It seems like the devil's kingdom 
is the obvious one. So the question then becomes, do I want His kingdom to come? Do I want to have Him be my king? If that's the case, then I'm going to be obedient to Him. I'm going to listen to what He has to say. I'm going to follow His lead. And then the question that I think is the most important one for you and me here is, do you truly desire His will to be done? Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David Jeremiah, well-known pastor, writes, when we learn the will of God, we begin to live the will of God. We have to learn it first. You have to figure out what is God's will for me. But the question is a very practical application kind of question. Do I truly desire His will or do I prefer mine? I think there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians, maybe playing the hypocrite role like the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day, who if they again were honest would have to say, no, I'd rather have my will. I'd rather do things my way. I'd rather be in control of my own life. Thank you very much. Well, if that's the case, then I really don't know that we have a relationship with Him. But if He is this perfect Heavenly Father, if He is this majestic God whose name is revered, then He has a will that is perfect for my life. Do I really desire His will to be, done, to be done? Another question, are you grateful for His provision for all of your needs? Notice again the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Glory and I have been reading the book of Joshua this month. And it's a great book. The people of Israel are... Uh, just into the promised land in Joshua chapter 5. They've crossed over the Jordan. And here's what it says in Joshua 5, beginning at verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, that would be the 15th, right? On that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna, remember that? Remember God feeding them with manna for 40 years? It says, the manna ceased on that day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. For 40 years, God had given them manna, but He had them stay on manna for one more day, and then they got to eat the produce of the land. He provided through manna, that was a miracle food of some kind. I don't know exactly how to describe it. But then, now they can have the produce of the land that He had promised to them clear back to Abraham's time. 
God took care of them. That's the point. Whether it was in the wilderness for 40 years with this miracle bread, or now in the land of Canaan, God provided for them. Sometimes I think we get so nervous, so nervous, looking at our budgets, looking at our wallets, looking at our checkbooks. We get so nervous thinking, oh, how is God going to provide? There's no money left in the account. I'm overdrawn at the bank. I've got bills coming due. What am I going to do? Do you really believe God will provide all your needs? And are you grateful for His provision of all your needs? It's one thing to to know intellectually, to have studied God's Word enough to know that God will provide all your needs. It's another thing to thank Him for that. Not just once in a great while, like Thanksgiving Day in November, but to be grateful all the time for how He provides. He has provided for this church for almost 14 years now. And I'm grateful. I hope you are. I know He will continue to provide. That's the kind of God He is. That's the kind of Father He is. And then this question, are you dealing with any temptation to sin right now that needs to be confessed? The text says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The debt there doesn't mean financial debts. It means a debt of sin. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So are you dealing with any temptation right now that needs to be confessed? It's not wrong to be tempted. It's wrong to give in to the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God will always provide a way of escape to the person who says, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I'm being tempted to this this thing or to look at this or to do this and I know it's wrong and I don't want to do that. God will provide a way of escape. But we have to be ready to escape. (laughs) We have to be ready to get on the move and get away from that thing, whatever it is. So you may need today before we partake of communion to confess some sin in your life. And I would urge you to do that. And then this final question, which leads to the third part of our text. Do you have any unforgiveness toward any other person? Any other. You see, that's one of our toughest tests when it comes to praying with power. When it comes to praying the way Jesus wants us to pray. When it comes to getting alone with God and having that audience of one and connecting with Him. One of the toughest tests we face is the test of forgiveness. The 
text says, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I think we sometimes totally miss that when we go to prayer. So we say our prayer and we end our prayer and we go on about our day and do our thing. And we totally miss the fact that while we've got something against this other brother or he's got something against us and we haven't dealt with it, that God isn't listening. You say, Bill, that's kind of a strong statement. God isn't listening to those prayers. Well, I I get it from Scripture. I didn't just make that up. Psalm 66, verse 18. David, who had some experience with sin and forgiveness. In Psalm 66, 18, he says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, and that word regard means to hold on to it, really uh, grab on and hold on. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Oh, it's wonderful to know that God hears and answers prayer. But there are times when He doesn't hear. When He chooses not to hear. And those times are when there is sin in our lives that we're not willing to confess and we want to hold on to it. We want to regard it. We want to hold it closely and not let it go. And then there are times when we have something against someone else. And we're not willing to give that up either. But until we do, God says, I'm not going to answer your prayer. I'm not going to forgive you. Communion is all about forgiveness, isn't it? It's about Jesus dying on a cross to forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. But what we discover is that if I'm holding a grudge against someone... I'm seething in anger towards someone. I've got an issue with someone and I'm not taking care of it like I should. God isn't listening. And that means then if I uh, glibly say, oh, uh, by the way, I I would appreciate some forgiveness, but we really don't mean it because we want to hold on to that. He's not going to forgive. Serious stuff. As it relates to communion, listen to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 29. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. The body there, I believe, is talking about the body of Christ. He's not judging the fact that there's an issue between himself and someone else that's not been taken care of. And he says, in that case, we're eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. Again, this is serious stuff. There's much more that could be said about prayer here in uh, this wonderful teaching of the Lord about prayer. But I want to share a story with you as I close this morning, and then we're going to worship at the Lord's table. 
But I want to give you opportunity before we uh, pass the plate of bread around or the container that has all the grape juice in it. Before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity for you to make things right with God. If there's any sin in your life that you haven't confessed. If there's any unforgiveness between you and someone else that you haven't taken care of, this is the time to do it. But let me share this story with you. When Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, was a young man, he traveled from Swatow up to the great city of Shanghai. He wanted to do God's will. He was planning to round up all of his medical instruments and medicines and go back to Swatow. And there he expected to uh, uh, labor with a Scottish missionary who had been his companion there. But when he got to Shanghai, he discovered that the building in which he left all his supplies and medical instruments had burned to the ground. Everything was lost. He was greatly discouraged, baffled, unable to understand why God would allow such a thing. And he sat down and pondered it. And with hardly any money in his pockets, he got up and made his way along the canals to the city of Ningpo, where he could buy some supplies from another missionary and then take the boat back to Swatow. In the heat of the summer, he journeyed, preaching as he went along. When he got to the end of the canals, he hired some local Chinese workers to carry all of his baggage. He started out and soon he outdistanced these uh, men who were carrying his bags. And he had to wait a long, hot afternoon for them to catch up. But when they did catch up, he found out that they were all drug smugglers. And because they had also been using drugs, they were unable to even carry his bags. And so he uh, kept the leader of the group. He told him to hire some more baggage carriers, and they started out again. But this time, they didn't catch up, ever. They stole his bags, all of them. Completely discouraged, he went to an inn for a night's sleep, but it was a rat-infested, bug-ridden place. He hardly slept. The next morning, a long march through the hot weather, He got to the city and found a place to sleep. He was turned away because he was a foreigner. And then he noticed some men in the dark looking at him. They were going to rob him. So he had to stay awake all night singing hymns and praying. And finally these men left. They figured, what's the use? Finally a young man offered to help him. They went along through the city without success until one o'clock in the morning. The young man abandoned him. He had to spend the next uh, night on the steps of a temple. In the morning, the young man who had helped him a little bit came back and demanded this outrageous fee for his guide service. It was just too much. Hudson had been through so much, and he couldn't take it anymore. He lost his temper. He grabbed the man by his arm, shook him, told him to go away. He sat down, dispirited. Then he got up and began the eight-mile-long walk back to Shanghai. He thought God had abandoned him. 
And then it came to him, he had denied his Lord, just as Peter had. All his anger and pain melted into tears of repentance as the truth broke through to him that he had never really asked God's guidance and protection. But he was angry with God. He'd been so intent on his own trouble, he forgot to commit the matter to the Lord. And he wrote in his journal that he asked God to forgive him. And at that moment, his heart was flooded with a glorious sense of the presence and forgiveness of God. That's what communion is all about. It's about an understanding that God forgives. I can't have anything between me and my brother, my sister, but I can know if my heart is right with God and I've had an audience with Him and He and I are one, that He will forgive. He's already forgiven back at Calvary. And He'll forgive my sin today. So I want to give you an opportunity right now to talk to God. Just you and God, an audience of one. And talk to Him about anything that's in your heart that needs to be confessed. And then we'll partake of communion. So talk to Him right now, will you? In these next silent moments. Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name how grateful we are for forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross how thankful we are for eternal life as a gift to those who put their faith and trust in you how thankful we are for prayer How thankful we are that You are willing to be our audience of one as we talk to You as a friend. Revering Your name, answering these questions that we've talked about today in a way that would honor You. And especially making sure that things are right between us and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you for forgiveness through our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.